today on The Future of Fandom, we craft brand love, find a common enemy, and talk a little bit about SpongeBob. My name's Adam Connor, I'm your host, and together we'll explore how Betterment is setting up the next generation with a long-term investing focus and building a fandom regardless with our guest, their chief marketing officer, Kim Rosenblum. Most folks in their 20s and 30s will deeply appreciate Kim's contributions as a leader at Viacom, where she led creative for properties like Nickelodeon. That's what makes her journey into fintech all the more fascinating. The perspective of a media-style approach to building a community of investors is one not often seen, but I think you'll agree that many of its principles work incredibly well when it comes to influencing your financial choices. As someone who's had the pulse of the next generation since the 90s, Kim is incredibly well-positioned to peer into the crystal ball and chat about what the leaders of this industry will need to do to stick. So let's do that now as we predict the future with Betterment and Kim Rosenblum. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Adam. It's nice to be with you today. I am lucky, and listeners, you are lucky. You might not know it yet, but you are lucky to be listening to this voice for the reasons I'm about to lay out. Number one, we're going to learn all about Betterment. We're going to learn about how fandom applies to super long-term investing. I'll, I'll get into all that, crafting brand love, having a common enemy. We're going to talk about a couple of things that you might relate to, but listeners who are, oh, let's say in your mid to late 20s, early 30s, might be the most nostalgic when we talk about some of the history that brought Kim to Betterment. So let me start there uh, without giving too much away. Kim, could you tell us a little bit about you? Obviously, we want to learn about what Betterment is, but sort of where you came from and why you came into this world after being a part of a quite different one just before. Sure. Thanks, Adam. Um, I am CMO at Betterment, which is the largest independent digital investment advisor. We're uh, just over 10 years old, and we're really a pioneer in fintech, especially in the long-term investing um, uh, category um, regarding fintech. So a lot of people know Betterment as a founder company. John Stein founded the company, um, and it's now grown to 700K plus customers and over 33 billion assets under management. So it's a significant uh, fintech. We're still, like I said, independent, um, which we're very, very proud of. Um, we're driven by innovation and really making people's lives better through financial planning and wellness. And it is unusual for me to be in a fintech space since I spent the majority of my career, well over two decades in media. But Sarah Levy, the uh, new CEO that John Stein appointed about 18 months ago, had also been in media, and she was a former colleague at Viacom, and she recruited me when she came over um, to Betterment. So it was an interesting leap for me, and um, I think I brought a lot of experience from media and a lot of experience from branding since I was lucky enough to work on some of the best media brands in the world. Well, uh, listeners, I told you. Now, in case I haven't laid this out clearly, we haven't laid this out clearly enough, those 20 years at Viacom included sometime at every American's favorite uh, network for cartoons. I say it that way. Nickelodeon, of course. So we talk about media. Man, uh, such a passionate follower base there. And it immediately makes me wonder how we're applying some of the principles that you applied to growing those various audiences, because it wasn't just Nickelodeon. It was the various properties that Viacom had in that world, um, to 
this world. Yeah. And so I, I wonder, like, what was the first hurdle, like, once you joined Betterment that you foresaw? And then we'll talk about how you crafted love to get over that. <laughs> sure. Um, well, like a word on my experience at Nickelodeon, I was incredibly lucky to walk into Nickelodeon in the 1990s, which many, um, you, Adam, and probably many listeners were actually at home watching Nickelodeon while I was sitting in a cubicle making Nickelodeon. Um, and we were, I mean, it was like the startup before the word startup existed. We were just making it up, frankly, and growing really quickly. And it was really exciting because it was a brand-driven um, concept. Uh, Nickelodeon was actually acquired by MTV right before I got there. Uh, Comedy Central was a sister channel. So this idea of creating a brand, a concept, targeting a specific audience, and then the product, or in this case, the programming, um, fulfilled that brand mission and you know spoke specifically to an audience in a passionate way. Um, you know, that was like a very new concept. Um, and so we really were inventing it and um, it worked. It was great. I you know, have a ton of fond memories. I would say my you know, proudest, you know, funnest one is that I was in the room when we watched the SpongeBob pilot. Uh, and really? I can tell you <laughs> that no one was like, this is going to be, you know, this is going to change the world. Everyone was like, yeah, that's funny. Let's try it. Um, we actually were in the room, um, decided to put our marketing effort behind another show called Cat Dog, which is a great cartoon, but, you know, no SpongeBob. Alone in the world with a little cat dog. Little I didn't feel that. Dog, right. sure. Yeah. So I actually did like a big marketing launch campaign for Cat Dog. Um, I did a lot of like business to business also with ad sales marketing and affiliate sales marketing. Uh, I worked a lot on Nick at Night and the spinoff channel TV Land. Um, so yeah, I just learned a lot there and, um, it was, like I said, a startup culture that very quickly became a media behemoth. So taking all of that learning was, um, really interesting coming to Betterment, which is also, um, moving past startup to growth stage and also building a brand that's based on a particular audience with products in this case, you know, FinTech products that really serve a specific audience, and trying to generate love around that, not just being transactional, but actually a, a relationship between a financial brand and a customer. Yeah, let me let me go right there because I have had the privilege of talking with a few players in the broad fintech spectrum on this podcast. Now, when I have done that, it has been around a specific offering or asset class, but the point for the most part has been the novelty of the product that you can invest in in uh, as part of the business. Now, I am sure, though we haven't quite gotten there, that there is a an avatar, I mean, that's what we would call it in the podcast game, like a person that you are specifically going after, an audience. You know that side very, very well because, well, you targeted that as part of, you know, <laughs> every episode of SpongeBob targeted a specific type of person. It wasn't, and sure, there was a product there, but it was searching for a person first. Right. I'd like to get your perspective on the industry, because you probably know more about it than me, or you definitely do, with regard to where do you see that development falling? Is it in finding a specific person or is it finding that specific product? And mm -hmm. regardless, yeah. what are you trying to do with Betterment? Yeah. You know, honestly, Adam, I feel like it can come in both directions. I don't know that I would say it's definitely product first or 
audience first. I do know that those two things have to fit really well together. And, you know, we like to say product market fit. But like if you unpack what product market fit means, it really just means like, you know, that you really understand what your audience, your customer really wants and that you design a product that fits that need. So, you know, that might be for us as we're developing um, crypto uh, investing portfolios, which will be launching later this year. That isn't just about a crypto product. It's about saying, okay, our customer is a long-term hold, managed, diversified investor. So how does crypto and portfolios and what does the experience around that product mean to that customer? So for us, that might mean, you know, just the way we develop the product, the way that you onboard onto it. If we are there for the long term, we're there to help you make feel comfortable. We're there to like bring forward like our core values of trust, safety, security, long term. So I think the product, like we're developing a great product, but we're developing it with the brand tenant and the customer in mind. So I think they go together. I would say the difference, you know, between when I was doing it early days Nickelodeon and now at Betterment is obviously it's a much more fragmented world. Uh, there's way more competition um, in, in every sphere. And I think what's happening, especially in fintech, is that in the beginning, even for Betterment 10 years ago, it was a little bit of like a digital marketing play and you sort of went out and you acquired customers. Now you need to have, you know, it's not just about acquiring customers. It's too competitive to think about that way. And if you're not just acquiring customers through a product, what value are you bringing to them? What's differentiated about you? Uh, why would you pick Betterment over, you know, one of our one of our competitor brands, whether that's a, a smaller player like a Wealthfront or legacy like a Marcus. Um, and so we have to provide a point of difference and it has to have value. So to me, the idea that brand or product, I wouldn't say one comes before the other. I think they have to work together. Um, and brand, by the way, is like a 365, 24 seven. Um, and so is the product. Like, you know, our product is there for you for the long term. So I think they go really nicely together. Transactional brands, um, which might be more in sort of like fintech banking categories, probably have different goals. So, um, you know, I, this doesn't apply to everyone. This is where we're coming from. Sure. And you're right. I mean, with regard to brand being 24-7, 365, it is, uh, and, and I have found just via my conversations with CMOs just like you, just how omnipresent and important it is. And, and to me, what that signals is like, well, I... I it's hard not to go after that type of person, that audience first, but hey, in an increasingly competitive space, yeah, that now now there has to be that balance from both ends, as you said, the, the product and the person. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really important in branding is not just knowing who you're talking to and what, you know, what your value proposition is to them, but to know like what else that offer they have out there and what's your point of difference. I'll go back to my Nickelodeon days. It's not like at Nickelodeon, we didn't know that Disney or Cartoon Network existed. Of course you did. And it wasn't like you're all in or you're nothing. It wasn't like, you know, you could so easily, it's so easy to just pick up the remote and flip around, right? So you had to have like, you have to understand that like you serve a specific difference between those competitors. So I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting for Betterment is just looking at some of our data, like the other apps that our Betterment customers have on their phone um, you know, include things like Coinbase and Robinhood and Acorns. Like, I get that. Like, we're not all things. Our customer has other brands that they have a relationship with, and that's awesome, and they should. We just need to have a clear point of difference and a clear value proposition. 
Sure. And because it's hard to nail down like a specific person when you're building something, obviously you have an ideal customer in mind, but really what this triggers to me is like, well, there, there's a broader, there's a broader set of behaviors. There's, there's a persona that you're, that you're going after yeah. as well. And for me, I have swung wide and it's, I tell you why it's really hard to nail that, at least from my perspective, because my my beliefs on investing and my relative uh, risk aversion or hunger therein has swung wildly, even in the mm-hmm. last few years, as you get hooked by uh, the craze of crypto and, and and even things like the meme stocks of early mm-hmm. 21. Now, obviously, I know that through something like Betterment, it's a, it's a different, you're looking at it in a slightly different way. But regardless, like I have swung wildly between keeping my emotions yeah. in check and chasing right. a check. And for you, I'm curious what the relative importances of, of each of these are. A persona that focuses on like just the money side and the persona that focuses on the emotions of investing. And given the fact that obviously you're leading FinTech forward, how do you think that future leaders of this world will prioritize between them? Or do you think they will? Yeah, you know, I understand. I, I can be the same way. I can have a reactive day and I can also be a long-term strategist. Like, I think that's human. I think what's happened is it's on our fingertips. There's apps that allow us to access things quickly. So impulsive behavior is possible, whereas that wasn't true before, you know, the proliferation of fintech apps and brands. Um, so I, I think like what you're saying, Adam, is totally normal. But honestly, what we stand for at Betterment is long-term and diversified and we manage it for you. So the people that like Betterment are people who want to have like that in their life. It doesn't have to be the only thing in their life, but they value that. And they also value, so for us, it's not like, okay, it's this person, this age, this demographic, like those things are helpful, but the mindset to me is more important. And these are people that, um, and maybe you're one of them, Adam, that like you get that there's some fun and transactional and some, you know, some hype that you want to be a part of, but you also need and know that you want to have a long-term solution. So in some ways, FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out on a GameStop or whatever, is almost like our perfect villain. Because what we want to do is say, that's fine. You're going to have those impulsive behaviors. But we're here for the the flip side of that. We're the other side of the coin. We're, the, we're here to be your long-term partner. So that when you have those moments, go ahead. You have that fun money. You have that try some stuff, chase the check, because we got your back in terms of the long term. So I think that's like where we fit in our sort of anti-FOMO brand isn't like, it's a weird thing because it's anti-FOMO, but that doesn't mean we're not in the conversation. We can just be in the conversation from that point of view. The use of the word villain even makes me understand a little better how you're thinking about this. And of course, where you came from. I mean, this to me is the root of anybody's fandom of a television program when they're a kid. You unite around what you want to see quelled, if it's plankton, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the, the, or whether it's, well, it's, it's this FOMO. Um, you've, as a result then, between Betterman and that time, have had long tenures of building brands around these sorts of villains. Um, is that fair to say? I mean, is there an element of the fintech world that is just as much in the ease of investing as it is in the the thwarting of some common enemy? Yeah. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious Definitely. about that. Definitely. I mean, I think listen, Nickelodeon, 
I can tell you, because I was there in the 90s, it was all about us versus them. Us was the kids, them was the world. So it was kids versus the world. And that's because kids didn't feel at the time that they had any rights or any um, respect. And that was sort of coming off of, you know, a certain type of parenting, sort of like this passive parenting. And and kids were like, you know, I want to have a seat at the table and no one listens to me and I'm marginalized. So we got the advantage of sort of like rallying around this idea that kids should be empowered and kids should be listened to. By the way, it worked because now kids, and I think many parents, millennial parents who are raising these kids, they grew up with that feeling and they empowered their kids. And by the way, now kids are like driving major purchase decisions. They, they are absolutely responsible for what car the family buys, what vacation the family goes on. Um, parents and kids have this incredible connection. There's a lot of family time now. So what was the enemy then is not the enemy now. Um, but what happened was that millennial mindset kind of came forward, I think, into into finances as a, as millennials became adults and started earning, you know, real income and, and thinking about what's going to work for them. They they did not have confidence in the institutions, and why should they have? You know, they come out into many millennials come out into the 2008 you know housing bubble bop um, pop and didn't have jobs and had student debt and didn't really like get a sense that the government was there to actually figure it out for them. And once again, they found themselves sort of like me versus the world. And so out of like that, I think the fintech and then of course the tech revolution happening at the same time was kind of a perfect moment for finance and tech to collide and address this group of people who were looking for something that was like spoke to them, that they could feel confident in, that it was personalized um, and that wasn't coming from like a giant institution who, with whom they had, you know, little reason to trust or little confidence in the, in a benevolent relationship. Right. Yeah. Because when I think of the fintech world in terms of a somebody to look like, oh, I'm, I'm not like them or it's them against me. You know, I'm not necessarily, I, at least at first, I wasn't thinking about FOMO over any of this. I was thinking about some hungry banker taking away a percentage of my money just because they were there to claim it. And, you know, so it, it's very interesting how these things have, have yeah, developed. And I think the other thing that, that like Betterment was absolutely founded on was accessibility. And there were so, and it's still happening, but there was so many decades of exclusivity. And that was, you know, another piece that I think that the intersection of finance and tech allowed was for people to say, you know what, I don't need to be welcome in. I don't need to be invited in by an advisor or, you know, have my parents introduce me to their financial advisor. I can actually take control of this and drive this for myself. And that's been like a real game changer. And I think, you know, you've seen all of the legacy institutions launch fintech brands or trying to figure out their relevance. Um, and I don't think you know, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle and and there shouldn't be. And um, I think the next generation is Gen Z, who's starting to you know, come of age and graduating college and getting jobs. Um, they're looking for people to advise them where they're at. So you know, the rise of financial influencers or the FinTalk makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I know there are some people who feel like, well, I can't believe people are getting their financial advice from a TikToker, but that's where the audience is. And that's, that's where they're seeking information. So not being there doesn't make any sense to me or being offended by that or being sort of like snobby about that it just means you don't really understand that audience. Sure. And I mean, assuming that you can get through uh, probably what a, a 
quite a bit of his probably not great advice if it is coming from somebody who's a you know a young investor who hasn't just been there very long. It can be incredibly valuable. I've I've been there as well. Plus, there is that added bonus of it being always on, always there, always fresh. You can swipe, swipe, swipe. And assuming that you're still in that community, you get new things. To me, it serves as a great complement to something like what Betterman provides, right? It's the short-term content to answer to the long-term vision of what making an investment in Betterment uh, offerings is like. And that's actually where I want to I want to ask you a question about this because it, it's it's a privilege to be able to chat with uh, with you as a leader of uh, building this uh, community of people who are focused on that long term. And like others who I've talked to who have been specialized in certain assets where maybe you can't track a ticker mm-hmm. every day, so too do so too does it become less relevant to be checking in constantly, frequently if you are aligned with a long-term goal. This may mean, in my mind, that maybe one of your customers, one of your 750,000, you say 700,000, uh, logs in mm, once a every couple of weeks, once a month, assuming they've made the inv- initial investment in. Uh, and I assume that that's okay yeah. for you all. But how do you build a fan strategy within that? I, I say fan yeah. just because we... We like to focus on fandom here. I'm, I'm curious yeah. what your thoughts on that. It is a little tricky because you, the best behavior, especially like we're talking right now, 2022, it's been a wild couple months, right? That we went from what was a pretty boom, boom 2021 to like a very volatile 2022. And the thing that I'm really heartened by with our customer base is that they're, they're not making a lot of moves right now. They're actually sitting back and, um, like riding it out, which is exactly what we've been advising and will continue to advise. So part of fandom doesn't have to just be about like, you know, likes and that kind of like measuring engagement by daily interaction. It can also be about like, did we provide, like, did we give a useful message and are we like, was it helpful and useful to you? Um, So I think people are fans of a brand because it serves their life not necessarily because like it just pops up in their feed. So I think it's okay to um, sit back. You know, we need to constantly reinforce that value and that long-term aspect. And we do that through the normal means, through paid marketing, through organic social, but also in product, through our content. You know, we have put out a little bit of content around the volatility right now and the messages stay the course. The messages don't get distracted, don't be impulsive you know, our, we have a behavioral um, economist on our staff and he ta- he calls it um, going on an information diet that he advises that in these crazy times, it's actually better to like get a little less information. Don't don't go like too hardcore, maybe a half hour of news morning, you know, in, in the evening, not before bed, because it, it doesn't feed your best instincts. You know, it doesn't serve your best instincts to be just constantly checking your feed and wondering what's going to happen next when things are out of your control. And, you know, everyone likes to be in control of things. It's it's hard. Um, but I don't think fandom and daily engagement are synonymous at all. And do you see other places in the world now that we're going to exit the world of maybe mm-hmm. fintech right now or maybe just a, a general brand circumstance? When that like when specifically that engagement or that metric shouldn't be your your number one? I mean, obviously, in, in areas where, you know, it's a long term considered purchase or investment like here, I, I get it because my, my guess is that 
what's the business focused on? Well, focused on assets under management, right? Focused on having that bottom line. You know, you don't need, oh, but look at all these views I got. Well, it's, it's, it's great, but it's more of a pulse check than a business line. When else, or is there, I'm sure there are, circumstances when engagement probably shouldn't be the top? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things I think, you know, is really fascinating is we have a sustainable investing um, portfolio of you know, products, portfolio, um, a climate impact portfolio, broad impact and social impact. And to me, that's a really good example because we did actually ask for people's participation. We brought in um, a partnership with Engine Number One, which is the activist investors that are taking on board seats, like they, they took over board seats on mobile to, to cause change from within. So we are actively involved with things that are activist investing, right? So I kind of speak out of both sides of my mouth. But to me, what's really interesting is that's an example of like actively engage and put your money into companies that support your values and coming from engine number one that represent that can represent you in the boardroom and do that in a way that means I'm putting my money and I'm leaving it there because that kind of change takes time. So I think, you know, the other thing to your question about like, when is it okay not to engage is long-term change. If you're trying to affect long-term change, like reversing the climate damage um, and forcing companies that, you know, are using fossil fuels to review that and, and reduce their dependence on them, like that's not going to happen in a short term. You've got to be committed to that for the long run. So in some ways, being an activist is actually a moment to also say like maybe engagement and daily engagement isn't the point. Maybe it's about like long-term commitment. Yeah. That's very interesting. I, I appreciate you speculating me uh, with me there for a moment. Um, and I, I'll, I'll ask you to indulge once more. And, and as we start to round out here, because we also focus on the future, which is speculation by definition. And since you are currently at the cutting edge of the next gen fintech experience, especially one focused on the long term, I'm interested in what you foresee for the future of those best in class digital, let's stick with digital experiences within finance. What do you think people are going to want? I mean, you talk about Gen Z, they're just coming into their own right now. They're just starting to see their first sources of income. They're starting to make these decisions. What do you currently see as what they want? And what do you anticipate they or people will want going forward? Yeah, you know, obviously crypto is is very topical, but I actually think the bigger picture here and what people will want long-term is access to the way we're going to do business in the future. It isn't so much about like a particular coin or a token. I think what we're going to see is people really interested in the future of business, which is the crypto economy. So for us, as I mentioned before, we'll be doing long-term diversified portfolio management with crypto assets. That's a long side that's not mixed in, just to be super clear. We're offering that as a separate investment strategy um, because that's what we think people want too. They don't want it just sort of mixed in. It's volatile. They understand that, but it's going to even out and it's going to be here for the long term. So we want to provide a product that um, back to that product market fit that they're looking for. But I, I do think the future is going to be about that decentralized finance and that's the way business is going to be done. So that's how I think people will want to get into it. Um, not necessarily just sort of like chasing, you know, whatever is popping right now um, in terms of like an individual coin or cryptocurrency. So that's like one speculation on my part. And obviously we're launching a product around that. So I believe in it deeply. 
I also think, I don't think it's going backwards. I think it's only going forwards. And the more access people have to be able to use digital payment, um, I think you'll see that really integrated, the idea of banking as a service, um, integrated into experiences, whether that's travel, you know, moving money like within a consumer um, and retail experience, I think will be commonplace. Yeah. So those are some of my sort of crystal ball predictions. Well, I appreciate getting to peer into that crystal ball with you and uh, for learning uh, all about this. I mean, it is a real, it's first of all, it's a pleasure to talk with you just because of uh, the tenure leading up to Betterment. But now, like the ability to apply these sorts of principles to a world that, I, you know, of course, you know, this app-based trading and investing didn't really, I don't really think it existed until like seven, eight years ago, really, at least in a prevalent manner. Uh, to be able to apply some of these tried and true fan uh, building, audience building, common enemy philosophies <laughs> towards this world that really hasn't had it is a treat to hear about in practice. Because I can think about it all day. Yeah, that makes sense. But to know that there's somebody out there doing it is really uh, something cool. So uh, personally, thank you for that. And for our audience, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and, well, telling the future with us. All right. Thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Kim Rosenblum from Betterment for joining us. I truly, truly appreciate what you're doing now for the next generation, just as you did for mine. And thanks to you, the listener, of course, for exploring the future of fandom with us. I'd encourage you to uh, stay tuned to this channel. So subscribe to the future of fandom wherever you listen. And you can also find our content at livelike.com slash podcast. And across socials, we're also on LinkedIn at livelike and Twitter at livelike inc. I look forward to predicting the future with you again real soon. And until then, I'm Adam Connor saying so long and thanks for being a fan. <laughs>